Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Now, joining me today is a friend of mine, Mr. Mike Brissick, and he's an adventurer, a writer, an entrepreneur, a father, a husband, a traveler, and a food lover. He lives in Toronto and loves exploring worlds both far and near. Now, he has uh, been an entrepreneur for quite a long time. Uh, He created a company called Sacred Rides Mountain Bike Adventures, and through their courses, workshops, and consulting uh, for social entrepreneurs, has built up an incredible company that he actually just transitioned out of last uh, last year, or sorry, last week. Uh, So it's very, very new. So Mike and I, uh, I really, we, we sort of run the gamut. Mike lost his father when he was 16 years old, and um, he shares some of his experiences of, um, of losing a parent that early on. And interestingly enough, uh, his experience of it was that for quite a long time, uh, he actually hadn't really thought that it really impacted him. So he shares uh, a very uh, deep part of his life in terms of losing a parent and working through uh, that process. We talk about how to navigate transition, um, any kind of transition in life, whether it's the transition of uh, losing a, a parent or a partner or something along those lines and working through the grief or transitioning through a career, uh, much like he is doing right now. So he actually shares some real-time experiences that he is going through in terms of uh, exiting his former company, uh, starting up a new one, and uh, and, and actually shares some real-life experience of uh, what he's going through in, in terms of right now with that transition. So we talk about that. Um, we talk about the age of loneliness. And, and actually, interestingly enough, this came out of the conversation around how to build community. So one of the things that Mike does is he builds communities um, mostly in person. And he has an adventure uh, company that takes people to some incredible destinations for uh, basically like a, a, a uh, retreat uh, retreat personal development event. And so he'll take someone, he'll take a group of people out to Costa Rica or Hawaii or Peru, uh, and they will sort of uh, go on this incredible inwards and outwards journey. Uh, so he shares his experience on building communities, but also how important in-person communities are nowadays. And we talk about the challenges of digital communities and some of the things that go along with that and how you can specifically start to deepen the connections that you have with the people in your life uh, and how you can use the power, leverage the power of community building, uh, whether it's in your career or your business uh, or just a project, a side project that you're working on, because now more than ever, um, in-person communities are needed and are being looked for and asked for. And so we dive deep into this topic uh, because uh, because of the loneliness that so many people are experiencing. So it's a great conversation. Um, if you know anyone that's going through a transition in their lives, if you know anyone uh, that is, you know, in the, in the process of trying to build a community, then definitely share this episode with them. Uh, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review uh, online through uh, with the platform of your choice, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or Google Play. And if you are interested in taking the conversation further, check out the Man Talks community online. It's a free community with some incredible men from around the world that have some great conversations. And if you want to go even deeper, definitely check out the Alliance 
or the men's weekend. The Alliance is an online program that we have going on, a, a group program where guys jump on a call with me every single week. Uh, and then the men's weekend is a special uh, retreat that I will be hosting for a small group of men out in Western Canada from May 17th to May 20th. It's going to be an incredible experience. So if any of that rings your bell, then go on to mantalks.com and uh, check those out. Sign up and you'll jump on a call with me to see if it's good fit. So without any further delay, without any further ado, please welcome my good friend, Mike. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, man, this has been a, it's been a long time coming. We've known each other for quite a few years now, and it's been incredible watching your path, you know, your journey of, of uh, what you've been doing for the last couple of years and what you are starting to step into. And, and uh, I think we're gonna have a great conversation today around transition and, and community. So I'm, I'm excited, man. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Yeah. And I was just thinking I could say same things about you. It's, uh, it's been really interesting to watch your journey and your, your evolution uh, as well. So yeah, exciting. Thanks, man. Thank you. Well, let's dive into the, the, the all important question that it's, it's so funny, like whatever I, if I don't ask this question, I get a whole bunch of messages after. So (laughs) (laughs) I like made the mistake a couple of times around like not asking this question. And immediately a few people through Instagram are like, Hey, Connor, you didn't ask the question on this last interview. Like, can you make sure to do that? Because it's, it's really good. So (laughs) speaking of community building and and feedback, (laughs) nice. Um, Great, man. So, so tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Yeah, that's um, that's a that's a pretty easy one because uh, you know out of all the defining moments in my life, there's there's one that definitely has a pretty outsized impact, and um, that was it began Christmas Eve 2004. I was living in this little mountain town in British Columbia, and I just started dating this woman uh, maybe a couple months previous, and I'd come home to Toronto for a week and then flew back on Christmas Eve to hang out with her. I thought we were going to have a fantastic Christmas together, and she ended up dumping me. And I remember walking home in the rain. It was raining that night and uh, just feeling down and just crawling into bed. And I woke up the next morning, and something had really shifted and actually barely even got out of bed for the next three weeks. And um, and it, it wasn't necessarily um, tied to this woman. We'd only been dating for a couple of months. Um, but that set that set in motion a chain of events which eventually ended up with me with me back in Toronto and eventually ended up with me maybe uh i don't want to over dramatize it but very very close to taking my own life and that was a two two and a half year journey through through depression through the darkest period of my life but what what was interesting is when i was going through that i had and one one interesting. I'm a musician. Uh, I was a professional musician for many years, and still consider myself one. And I always have music going going through my head. There's you know a song I've composed or another song that like there's always music bouncing around my brain. And um, and that day, Christmas Eve 2004, that was like American Pie. It was the day the music died, and that that music that's this constant refrain in my brain got replaced with this horrendous voice that just was just telling me over and over, life sucks. It's never ever going to get better again. It it and just on on loop for for well over two years. And I remember at one point over the ensuing months, my friend, uh, my my best friend, saying to me, 
very wise guy, and he said, he said, I know this is really hard, but one day you're going to look at this as the best thing that ever happened to you. And in hindsight, that, that whole period of my life, two, two and a half years, was the, the, I've, never, I've never experienced a period of such growth at that time. And it took me a while to accept that that's what I was being called to do. Um, because, you know, for the first year, it was just kind of hanging on and like, what is going on? I'd never been in that state before. But then, then I started to see it, you know, as more of a call from the universe to grow and evolve and develop. And, and I won't bore you with the details of what, of what that growth looked like, but, you know, elements of therapy and all kinds of other things, understanding myself. But who I emerged on the other side of that and who I was going into it were radically different people. And it gave me, that experience gave me a lot of um, perspective and what I might consider my gifts at this point that maybe I didn't recognize. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and it was, um, and looking back on it, absolutely, absolutely was the best thing. And I can look back as hard as that was as um, an act- actually a beautiful time in my life, as, as strange as that sounds. No, that makes, I mean, it makes a ton of sense, man. And I think, you know, I know a lot of people that have gone through these sort of like <laughs> rebirthing, you know, it's almost like a, like a, like a gestation, like a negative gestation in their life where they go through this period and there's many different labels for it, right? I think I'm not too sure who initially said this, but someone called this the dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. right? That there's sort of like this period that we go through and it, and it often causes an immense amount of growth when we, when we let it, um, and our, our tendency is to sort of buck against it and reject it and fight it and and do, to do everything in our power to avoid the reality of what's what's actually there. And that usually makes it worse. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's, the, that's the funny thing, right? It's like I've been in that space. I've gone through that dark night of the soul over the course of like three years. And it was a it was the exact same thing. It was like the more that I fought it, the more that it seemed to consume me and consume my actions and my thoughts and and everything that was around me. So if you could identify, you know, some of the pieces that came out of that in terms of what you learned about yourself and and, and maybe how you navigated that dark period in your life, because I think a lot of people go through that and maybe some of the people listening to this are going through that right now. But how did you how did you actually face that dark period if you can look back um, retrospectively and 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 how did you not make the most out of it, but how did you face it and, and start to move through it? Well, I, th- I think, um, as you mentioned, I, I didn't really face it for a while. It's it's sort of akin. I know, I know you. I know you're familiar with Joseph Campbell's work and the hero's journey. It's sort of like that. Um, those initial phases with a, a hero. I'm not. I'm not making myself out to be a, a hero, but it's my own hero journey. And um, that initial phase is just resisting the call and and looking back on that, that was absolutely, you know, a call from the universe to wake the fuck up and, um, and, and start on my journey. And, and I really resisted that for the first, you know, I just, I, I resisted physically. I could barely get out of bed for, for weeks and weeks, um, on end. I, um, I, I went and saw a doctor and he diagnosed me with depression. He gave me a prescription. That prescription sat on my desk for about a month and I just sort of looked at it every day and, and, um, there was all sorts of complex emotions around that, you know. I don't want to. I don't want to mess with my brain chemistry, but you know, I had. I was and I was 
you know, I was I was a hippie living in a in a mountain town in British Columbia, so I still viewed the pharmaceutical world as like you know the evil corporate man, and I'm not going to take their drugs. But also some shame in resorting to that. And then maybe after about a month of like, oh my god, I can barely get out of bed. I need something. Started taking them, and I would and I would feel better. And then I would convince myself that it wasn't the medication, that I was just feeling better and life was better. And I'd quit cold turkey, which, you know, you should never do. And then I'd, then I'd sink even farther. And I was on that roller coaster for about, for about a year. And um, that September of the following year, 2005, I ended up moving back to Toronto. And a few months after that, that was, um, I, I, I woke up in the middle of the night and life was, life was quite dark at that point, but I woke up in the middle of the night one night and it was that that voice inside my head that was telling me, you know, life sucks. It'll never get better. And it was like this this deafening crescendo. And it, and I was, you know, ha- probably having an anxiety attack at that point. But it just felt like the the entire universe was caving in on me. And and I just made the decision right then and there. I said, well, I can't possibly, um, I can't possibly get. Th- I don't know how I can even get through this night, let alone the rest of my life. So there's only one way out. And I started thinking about how I was going to actually do that and, you know, the effect that would have on people I love, all that kind of stuff. And uh, somehow, and I, to this day, I don't know how I managed to get back to bed, but I managed to get back to bed. And I, when I woke up in the morning, I just resolved that I, 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 that I couldn't continue life like that and I needed to really commit to my, to my wellness. And, um, you know, the first, first, first part of that journey was committing to the medication and not not being on this on on again off again roller coaster, and I knew I knew that wasn't the solution. I just knew that that was I needed some ground under my feet so that I could actually do the work that I needed to do. I started seeing an incredible therapist, and um, a lot of that work is was around the the, the gr- grieving of my father who died when I was sixteen, and um, I never actually grieved him when when he died. He he'd struggled with brain cancer for a couple of years and. Me being a teenager, I didn't want anything to do with that. And so when he actually died, it was, you know, I just kind of pushed that out of my mind. And that whole experience going through what I went through about 20 years later was kind of that wake-up call like, hey, you know, maybe you should think about going through this process of grief. It's been a while. And when I did start it to, when I did start to enter that and lean into that work, boy, oh boy, did it gushing out in, in, in torrents of of sadness and anger and, you know, every emotion imaginable, you know, that, that was what that opened up for me was this um, experience of just opening up to a much wider range of emotions and a much wider perspective on the world and on human suffering and far more empathy and understanding for others. And that was, that was one of the biggest gifts to come out of that experience, because I would say up until that point, I was mostly, a pretty hedonistic, selfish shit. So, um, <laughs> and, you know, I wasn't, a, I didn't walk around being a, a total dick, but certainly life was about my, my pleasure and, and extracting maximum amounts of that. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was, um, you know, like I, I, I did this work with this therapist. I ended up doing this group work, which was incredibly powerful. I ended up taking my yoga teacher training, um, getting into meditation, really upping my exercise, you know, all the sort of classic um, elements of wellness. You know, I, I really just dove into it. And and it wasn't until I, you know, it wasn't until I got that slap from the universe 
you know, that night that I woke up uh, just shaking and very coming very close to taking my own life that in, in that classic sort of rock bottom way that I actually answered, answered that call to go on the journey. And mm-hmm. I'm glad I did. Yeah, man. I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Cause one of the, you know, one of the things I was going to ask you is that dark period in your life. Like what was the, what was the origin story? And it sounds like it had a, a pretty clear, you know, once you started doing the work and reflecting and, and <clears throat> kind of seeing what, what was there it's it's interesting because it sounds like it you know that origin story really came forward for you and it's i i think it's one of those things where a lot of people who have these the more and more that i work with with men and women who go through these you know dark nights of the soul or these sort of like lost periods in their life where they're not too sure what's what's coming or what they want to do with their life or how to give it meaning um, the more that I see a lot of these pieces are like existential crises, you know, and that things like depression and anxiety are often an, an extension of that, where there's a form of this sort of big ominous question of what does any of this mean and what am I supposed to do with any of it? And <laughs> and maybe maybe it's not that question that's ruminating in every single moment of every single day, but a lot of the times, you know, when we like your experience, lose a parent. And there's, 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 I'm sure that there's a hundred or a thousand questions that come along with that around why it happened and what it's supposed to mean. And, you know, like what, what you're supposed to do with your life after that. And so uh, I'm curious if you can shed just a little bit of light. Cause I, I know that, you know, a lot of people that tune into this podcast have, have lost someone in their lives. What was your experience like when you started to work through that process and actually started to, go through that process of grieving? I, I think my, my um, overwhelming experience of that was, was surprise because I had spent almost 20 years convincing myself that I was fine with it. And people would ask me, you know, if my dad ever came up in conversation, say, oh, he died when I, when I was 16. I'm, it's okay. I'm fine with it. And I really believed that. And, and going through that process, it was shocking to me the amount of emotion that came out of of that work it 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 really i mean what was most surprising was the amount of rage and anger that came out of that yeah you know and and as i as i started doing that work all this uh sorrow came out which is sort of natural but then the amount of anger that came out um was really su- surprising and you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't make any logical sense. Like, how can you get angry at somebody because they got cancer? They didn't want to. But from a 14-year-old's perspective or a 16-year-old's perspective, you just want your dad around. You want your dad to be around, you know, that critical period of your life as you're transitioning from boyhood to manhood. And, you know, you need somebody there to show you what that means. And it's confusing enough as it is. But then going through that and, um, you know, I would, I would get in that therapist's room and he had this kind of tackling dummy thing and, and I would take this baseball bat and, and we'd, we'd be talking about stuff. And then, you know, these, these emotions would come out and say, why don't you, you know, why don't you feels like there's a lot of emotion behind that? Why don't you give this thing a, a bat? And I'd kind of go through the motions at first and be like, and then something would take hold of me and just this um, experience of just pure blind rage and anger at my father for leaving me. And that ended up being so incredibly cathartic, being able to just release that that intense level of emotion around that. And then on the other side of that, find forgiveness for him because of course I can't hold him responsible for. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, it, it, it really underscored to me the importance of the grieving process. And, and grieving doesn't have to be just, you know, grieving a person who, um, who's left you or a person who, who's died. Um, it could be grieving for any number of, of things that we've lost. And I think in our, you know, North American, Western culture, we don't really give grieving its, its proper due. And, and in many societies around the world, grieving occupies such an important part of the culture. And there's kind of prescribed, um, you know, ceremonies and, and actions that we go through during the process of grieving. And you know, for us, obviously, funerals are, are part of that. But we, we tend to kind of quickly gloss over that. And um, it's it's underscored the importance to me of, of of grieving. And grieving really, to me, is just the process of sitting with that emotion and and allowing the, the grief and this sorrow and anger, or whatever, to, to move through you and not not running away from it. And that's um, mm-hmm. and that's really, I think, important work because, you know, in my in my experience, I, I ran away from it, but I couldn't. It you know, it was there with me all along, and until I actually finally got the call to hey, slow slow the hell down and and pay attention to this, it just you know, it ran my life under the surface. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I, you know, it sounds like what you're talking about is such a common thing for a lot of a lot of men. You know, like a lot of the guys that I work with, one of the one of the biggest common words that I hear from guys is the word numb. You know, and they they have something happen in their past, or they have something going on in their present that they can't seem to access uh, their emotional body to, or they're not even conscious of like what's happening underneath the surface. And it's just sort of like that sensation of like, I, you know, it's just, it's okay. It's just fine. You know, it's just fine. Or I just feel numb. And, and, and a lot of that will at some point resurface, you know, and, and it's, it's one of those things where we oftentimes culturally as, as guys haven't really been taught how to deal with these incredibly challenging, uh, events other than to, to sort of stonewall them, mm-hmm. you know, to emotionally stonewall them and be like, no, you know, fuck it. It's okay. Like I'm, I'm fine. And you know, she left me or, you know, he, he left me or I got fired or whatever it is. And it's just like, yeah, yeah I'm just, I'm fine. It's okay. I'll get through it. I'll get past it. You know? And, and the advice that, that oftentimes more, you know, some, some men give to each other is, is just like, I just drink it off. You'll get over yeah. it. Right. And you go out and party and, you know, and do the drugs and, you know, have the sex and, and you and you try and sort of numb it out even more, right? So it's like we have this culture around numbing uh, as men, and and unfortunately we don't have a vehicle to to express. And so it's interesting because a lot of the work that we do at the men's weekends is is similar to what you were talking about in in your therapy. While we don't have a, a dummy in a baseball bat, <laughs> although I, in, immediately I was like, oh fuck, that's a really good idea. <laughs> I was like, that's a great idea. Um, but but anyways, you know, it's we we have that culture of of numbing, and so it's really great to hear your experience of of learning how to embody those things, learning how to process those things, of giving them giving them a voice and experiencing them fully, and and rather than having them sort of run, you know, run the show from the behind the scenes. So, um, but you know, I think one of the things that this brings me into is this I this this sort of topic of transition, which you know, can show up in so many ways, right? You know, it sounds like that was a, a very long arc of transition for you. And it sounds like you've also recently gone through a transition. And so, so maybe, maybe just give the, the listeners a little bit of a context for the transition that you've gone through recently. So for the past 22 years, um, I've, I've been an entrepreneur, 
Um, I've owned my own company. I've done fairly well with that company in terms of scaling it. I actually started that when I moved out west right after right after my final exam in university. Just hopped into a car, drove out to this little mountain town. It was um, a bit of an escape, I guess, but served me well for about 10 years. But I started that company out in British Columbia. When I moved back to Toronto, I expand, you know, started expanding it. That, that company offers high-end mountain bike trips all over the world. It's, it's been a blast running that company, but I've known for the last several years that my heart's not really in that business anymore. So it's kind of been on my mind for the last few years about getting out and then got serious about it November 2017 when I hired a broker to help me sell it. And that, that process actually just wrapped up last week, which, um, you know, as, as of us recording this, that would be, it was actually on my birthday that I signed the, signed the purchase agreement, February 21st, 2019. Nice. Yeah. I thought we, I thought we were going to sign it before the end of 2018. And it's just the last seven weeks were just lawyers, lawyers, and lawyers. And, uh, I almost, um, I, I almost went bald, I think from just pulling all my hair out. Um, you know, we, we were chatting about this. Uh, I, I've, I've been very prepared for this for quite some time now. It's been on my mind for several years and I've been thinking ahead to what's next after that. And I even started up, uh, you know, another company about a year and a half ago. And I've always got, I've always got several projects on the go, any of which could be, you know, I could dive into full time uh, after this exit. So what, it wasn't like um, what's going to happen afterwards is a big mystery. And I'm certainly not the and, and I'm not getting, you know, I'm not getting a ton of money out of this. Um, not It's not like retirement money, but um, it wasn't a mystery to me what I was going to be doing afterwards. It, but I, I, I've, I was still a little bit unprepared for the. And you know this is still pretty new. It's five days now since I've signed that agreement, but I've been, um, I've been, I've been trying to sit with whatever, whatever those emotions that are coming up, and they're kind of confusing ones because, you know, on the one hand, it's like this thing that I've been working on for fourteen months now is is complete, and I should feel this immense source of elation, and on the other hand, this thing that's been a inextricable part of my identity for twenty two years is going to be coming to an end you know I'm, I'm going to be out of the company by june 30th and then everything else that goes around that and and um it's it's definitely it's definitely a confusing time and i think maybe one thing i learned from that other transition that we already talked about was i guess an element of faith that um it's all it's all happening the way it should be and it's not it's not up to me to figure out the meaning of of it all right now or you know, figure out how I can get rid of those feelings of discomfort, whatever. It's just, you know, it, it's just for me to sit sit with it and experience it, not run away from it, um, and and just be comfortable with the discomfort. Well, and I think I, if I could just like interject there, I think that that's such a such a great like sort of point right there, right? It's is getting being being comfortable with the discomfort, right? Like knowing that that's a part of the process and. Not just simply allowing it, but but being able to turn towards it, and I think that that there's such a strength in that that we sometimes forget how to cultivate, right? And and we we sort of like grow up in this participation award culture where where oftentimes people are told like, oh yeah, life's just meant to be 
great. And so people are people are oftentimes sort of in this sort of search for happiness of seeking this utopian way of existence where where they shouldn't feel bad things mm-hmm. <laughs> or they shouldn't feel down or they shouldn't feel, you know, there's all these, there's all of these caveats for you, know, what we shouldn't feel. And, and the challenge with that is that it, it doesn't actually uh, strengthen us internally. And so it, it, it actually starts to, to sort of like weaken our psyche in many, in many ways. And we stop, we stop turning towards the challenging things, which would, usually propel us forward and usually we stop turning towards the propelling the the challenging things because they're unknown right like that's it, it that is like one of the biggest pieces of work that we can do is is how do we how do we cultivate a strength or a relationship with the unknown in such a way where we can continue to lean into that unknown because it's out of the unknown that the known comes to us right so like the more i've always found that like in those transition periods in my life where i've switched careers or you know i just i recently moved from vancouver to new york right so that's a huge transition Mm -hmm. and there is an immense amount of unknown you know applying for green cards or you know visas and new places and new people And, and so but what i've noticed is that the more that i can the more that i can move towards being comfortable with and seeing how much I can take <laughs> of the unknown, it almost like builds up this resiliency of having more faith and not needing to cling to a belief that it's going to be okay. I think what I'll just end on saying here is like one of my favorite quotes from Alan Watts is just four words. He says, belief clings and faith allows. Hmm. And I think that that really summarizes in many ways our experience in transition is that we when we are transitioning, we're we're desperately trying to grasp for uh, what comes next, or or know some form of an outcome that will give us security. And when we do that, we we're trying to find a belief that everything's going to be okay, or we're going to be safe, or you know we're going to be taken care of, or whatever whatever the, the the dialogue is, the narrative is internally. But it's so much different to cultivate that relationship with the unknown and have faith. Because that takes a form of surrendering. So, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I th- I, I echo that fully. I think that's a beautiful way to put it. And I've actually taken steps over the last year to really cultivate a good relationship with the unknown, with confronting the unknown, unknown, um, confronting fear. And fear is often just a manifestation of that discomfort with the unknown. And it, it, you know, and and I and I undertook a few experiences specifically um, for the purpose of confronting that fear. Um, what was interesting that came out on the other end of this was this, just being able to look at, you know, I've, I've committed to this particular experience, you know, for instance, and leading up to it, I have this tremendous amount of anxiety. And then as soon as, so, um, well, I don't want to get into any specifics right now, but um, as soon as that experience is, is over, I'm able to look back and say, well, what, 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 what the hell was all that anxiety about? Um, I knew I was going to commit to this experience. And so whether the experience turned out well or not, the anxiety served no purpose. I, I'd already committed to it. And it was a good reminder to me of, of just being able to, to lean into those experiences where I'm feeling discomfort and where I'm feeling anxiety and to trust that that I'm being led there for a reason and that I shouldn't shy away from it. And one thing that came to mind as you were talking was um, I'm, I'm part of this group of, of six men that we meet monthly 
we're all entrepreneurs. Um, we actually started it because a few of us left EO Entrepreneurs Organization. We were looking to start our own thing. Mm. And it's it's called the Shackleton Society, and it's and it's named after Ernest Shackleton, who's this famous polar explorer from the turn of the uh, uh, beginning of the 1900s. And he's kind of held up as this um, p- uh, pinnacle example of leadership because he was able to keep these 30, 40 men alive in the harshest conditions on Earth for over over a year and a half. And everybody came back alive from that journey. And we have these mottos or, or sayings for for the group. And one of them is into the fray. And it's this concept of um, not backing down from challenge or not backing down from difficulty or problems or, or the unknown. And uh, that's probably been one of my weakest, weakest points over the years, particularly in, in business, there'd be a, a problem that comes up. And my response would be to just hide from it. And most of the time, what happened was that problem, which would have been easy to deal with, became more and more difficult. And then I decided, you know, to adopt this motto of into the into the fray. When when things come up, I would just dive into them, and that would be the first thing that I tackle every single morning, if if I if there was something to tackle it. And ninety nine percent of the time, that problem is never, never ever as big as I've made it out to be. And just by actually dealing with it and confronting it head on, it diminishes its power massively over me. So I think you know we shy away from problems not because the difficulty of the problem, but because of the unknown of dealing with that problem. And, and because that unknown, we take this thing, we wrap this container around it that is so much bigger than the actual problem itself. And that to me has been a, a great learning lesson of just, you know, I repeat that to myself, into the fray and, um, you know, try, try to avoid that ostrich in the sand sort of a, approach to, to life. And that's also helped immensely in my relationship with my wife as well, because that's kind of been my default there as well. When things get difficult, mm-hmm. I'll just withdraw and I'll, and I'll, and I'll stonewall or, you know, whatever. And, and when I sit with that discomfort and, and when that happens, you know, when things are getting heated, when she's getting uh, angry or frustrated with me, my, my natural response is I want to, I want to crawl into my shell like a turtle and, and, and cover myself as much as possible. But just sitting with that process of like, Hey, I can feel all this stuff coming up in me, but that doesn't have to that doesn't have to dictate how I respond to this. And if I can choose a different response, that's typically going to end up with a way better outcome uh, for me. So there's a long answer <laughs> to your, to your no, question, no, that, but um, that's kind of what that all means to me. No, that's great, man. That's great. And I think, you know, what you're describing there is is really a reaction that a lot of people take, especially a lot of men take when when there is the unknown or there's an uh, sort of like suboptimal situation that that's starting to show up whether it's in our business or our relationship it can often turn into that that type of sort of uh, i like i like your example of turtling right like it's we sort of hide and and we try and turn away from it you know that's really what it is we try and turn away from it and we avoid it in some capacity because we we don't really know what's going to happen or be on the other side of that or or we don't look internally at, at how we might be causing that, especially if it's in our relationship. And it is a form of us uh, hiding from what's really happening. And the more that we can go into the fray or the more that we can lean into the unknown, that, that one's mine. I say just lean into the unknown, lean into the unknown. you know. And that leads me to, to some incredible, incredible places within myself and, and within my work. So 
you know, I think the more that we can cultivate that for the, for everybody that's <clears throat> sort of like listening and on this journey in, in their life where, you know, wh wherever that shows up, wherever that transition is showing up, it's, it's, you know, really start to ask in your, ask yourself, what's your version of into the fray? What's your version of lean into the unknown? And, and how can you cultivate the, the willingness to do that as often as humanly possible every single day, every single hour in as many situations as possible when the unknown sort of rears its, its ugly head. And then I, I'm curious for you, Mike, like how has, how has community sort of been a, an integral part of your ability to navigate tr transition? I'll, I'll provide a bit of context around, around that in, in saying that up until about four or five years ago, I would say I had a had a very lone wolf approach to life. Um, it's, I mean, I had plenty of friends, but I didn't really think of myself as being, you know, as part of any communities. And particularly in my entrepreneurial life, I just kind of, you know, with a fair amount of hubris, just thought I had all the answers. It wasn't until I, you know, 2013, I took on my first investors, did it again in 2014, really started you know, hiring more people, ramping up growth, you know, quickly scaling. I started, I started um, experiencing all this complexity that I wasn't, that I found myself unprepared to deal with. And that's when I started to kind of get over my own hubris and get my head out of my own ass and say, hey, I don't have all the answers. Um, I, I want to connect myself with other people who might help me solve some of these problems and maybe I can help them so solve some of their problems. So I started attending various events. I started becoming involved in groups like EO. And a lot of that work has been in the context, context of my life as an entrepreneur, but it's extended beyond that as well. And, um, you know, trying to trying to get away from that that lone wolf mentality. And really, I think, you know, co community is where we as a human species really find our, our true expression. We are social animals and most species on this earth are, are social species as well. That's where we, I, I really think, find our truest expression as human beings. And so, so much of my, my work over the last few years has been around um, diving into this concept of community, doing the work of community building myself, uh, but also researching, being part of other communities, and and really trying to find out what what is uh, what is a true community. You know, a true community is somewhere where you feel a sense of belonging. And I could I could probably say that for most of my life, I haven't really felt a sense of belonging anywhere. And it's only been in in recent years that I've been able to to experience that. You know, in 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 some sort of meaningful and authentic kind of way. And I guess you know to answer your question, what it boils down to is really community is. Is a place where you feel that you that you belong, and that where you can feel your truest self. You don't have to show up with a mask. You don't have to show up wearing armor. You can show those parts of you that are vulnerable, and you can be authentic. You know, with my with my newest company, Mastermind Adventures, I put on these events around the world for entrepreneurs. These kind of adventure retreats. On the on the surface, it's you know, it's it's a cool adventure in a spectacular part of the world, a great travel experience, but really at the heart of it, and anybody who's joined me on one of my events knows that the heart of it is this is is the process of community building. How can I take these people who for the most part arrive as strangers and how can I how can I over the course of five days or seven days 
create an environment where they feel deeply connected to each other, where they feel like a community has been created that is going to endure, that's going to support them for years to come. And, um, you know, at, at the heart of that, what I've, what I've really discovered is that the act of community building is the act of creating those safe spaces for belonging. And people belong when they feel that they don't have to wear that mask, right? Because most of us, for most of our lives, whether it's at work or whether it's in, you know, certain friendships or whatever, we have a mask, some sort of metaphorical mask that we wear that we think that, you know, this, the people in this context, this is how they want me to be. And that's exhausting, right? You walk around your whole life wearing masks and never ever being able to truly express who you are. It's, it's psychologically exhausting and spiritually exhausting. And so a lot of my work and, and, and lonely and, and very lonely. Yeah. And so a lot of my work has really been diving into that about how do you, how do we create these cultures of, of belonging? And um, it's, it's really gratifying and really fulfilling work. And it also speaks to my own, you know, desire for belonging. So it's a, it's a little bit of my own, my own itch that I'm scratching and, and getting connected to these amazing people. And, you know, I do this, I do this work here in Toronto as well, various events and stuff like that. And, and I feel a real natural affinity to it. And, and now that I'm transitioning out of one company, um, I'm, I'm really wanting, you know, wanting to devote myself to that full time. Nice man, nice. I, I I like the way that you approach the you know, like the d definition of community. You know, being able to be around a group of people where you're sort of uh, what I heard was fully accepted. You know, where you can bring all of the parts of yourself forward and and be heard and be seen and be challenged and be you know accepted and and be celebrated and 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 have all of those things happen within a within a group dynamic. And I think that is oftentimes the part that, you know, especially uh, especially men, we we can often struggle with. Like, it's it's fascinating to me over the last couple of years. I'm curious to, to hear how many, uh, you know, how many guys come out and experience these adventure uh, adventure retreats with you because, you know, over the last couple of decades, as more research has come out, a lot of it shows that that many men, something like fifty percent of guys can't identify a best friend and and upon saying that like when i do public talks and whatnot whether it's at a insurance company or a school or whatever it is people are always shocked and they're like you know how can that be like i have i have friends and my question is always do you have friends that you can show every single part of you that that you aren't afraid to bring you know some of those dark parts of you forward and have the challenging com conversations and really like admit where you've been struggling or uh, be able to celebrate what you've been doing in life and and receive recognition from them. And the, the, the shocking part is that the reality oftentimes for people is no, you know, they have one friend to, to go and talk about relationships with, and they have another friend to go and, you know, shoot the shit with and have beers and watch sports. or they have another friend to, right. And so like, as men, we can very quickly compartmentalize our friend groups and, and not have a circle or a, or a community of people who see all of us, right. The good, the bad, the ugly, the whole thing. So what's been your experience in, in running some of these events and sort of getting people, well, actually, first and foremost, how do you normally get people out of their comfort zone so that they can start to bring some of those parts forward? Because I've noticed that that's a pretty important piece. 
one of the key things I've learned and probably one of the most important things is that people, people are going to meet you at whatever level you set, right? And so if I, if I show right from the beginning that I'm willing to be vulnerable and I'm willing to go to those places, then people are generally going to meet me there. Whereas if I want to kind of hover around the surface, that's where people are going to stay. And so for me as, as a facilitator, as a leader, it's important for me to set that, that tone early on. And I've, you know, I've also learned a lot about creating those, um, those, those spaces, large things, small things, all kinds of different elements. You know, one of the, one of the things I've really realized the importance of is around the importance of symbolism and around the importance of ceremony. And that doesn't have to be like, you know, really kind of, uh, incense and, and hippie kind of thing, but it's just, uh, you know, a, a welcome ceremony can simply be the act of stating, we are here. This is the reason why we are here, and we're going to honor, you know, this space that we've created together. And simple acts like that, and the symbolism, you know, in Argentina, we were in Patagonia back in December. One of the um, one of the lovely aspects of community and belonging there is is uh, yerba mate, which is you know the national drink. It's it's this tea that you drink out of these gourds with this special straw, and uh, typically, when you go to somebody's house, the first thing they'll do is they'll welcome you in and they'll pour you a mate. And that act of drinking the mate together is creates that you know sense of belonging. You are welcome into my house. So a simple ceremony where we passed around the mate, it's just a symbol to say, "Hey, we're here and we're here together." And you know, this is our this is our community. So little acts like that of just um, of just reminding people that they are they are welcome in this space. And also setting, you know, setting the tone for them, saying this is this is this is where I expect you to meet me. And if you're comfortable, if you're not comfortable meeting me there, that's fine. But uh, you are welcome to come to this place with me and, and to this level of of depth because that's where I'm going. And um, and that seems to be really powerful. And the other thing that I've just discovered is the is the power in asking the right questions. And um, so a lot of my events, you know, I'll have things like dinner cards and it'll be people's names on one side and on the back will just be a question. And it's meant to, you know, people tend to default to, you know, what do you do kind of kind of questions when they've when they haven't met each other. Um, but it's funny when you give them the, the license, like, OK, well, I guess I'll answer this question because it's on a card and I'm supposed to answer it, that people will open up remarkably. And um you know, it, it's it's amazing to see it, it, some of the things I've done, the level to which people will open up, and and also how refreshing it is mm -hmm. for them to just, it, particularly you know, at entrepreneur focused events where where uh, there's this tendency to want to just show off how awesome you are and what an amazing company you've built, and you know, my revenues are 100 million, and, and I've won these awards and all that kind of stuff, it, which is also exhausting. Um, but it's so refreshing for people to just be able to say, hey, I don't have my shit figured out. I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. And that opens up the conversation for other people to share what they're struggling with. And that's, it's, it's a, it's a strong, it's a really strong point of connection between people. And it's also when you can open up to that level, that's when you might really get the help that you actually need because you're not you're not talking about like, oh, I got to fix my marketing, something like that. When the real problem is, hey, my marriage is falling apart or something like that. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I like that. I think 
it's it's interesting like at the man talks events i always create these opportunities for for people where they sort of have i mean <laughs> they have permission and i think one of the most interesting things that of what you're talking about is how do we create more permission uh, within our communities and how do we create more permission within our connections on a daily basis where people can have the permission to express their sort of truest form you know their what's what's really true for them in that moment not in like a woo-woo spiritual way because i like even just saying that i think can often be misinterpreted but how do we give permission to other people to just talk about the real shit that's going on in their life and that's such an interesting thing because it's it's not just as simple as saying like, hey, tell me about the real stuff that's going on in your life. While that might work and that might work with some people um, and you you can try that with some of your close friends, it, it's, uh, it oftentimes doesn't produce the environment uh, or the container that's conducive for people to actually share. But it's almost like if you create this space where you sort of have like I, I call it forced connection at the at the man talks events where we'll have a speaker go up and I will then ask the audience a question after the speaker's gone and I'll say okay go find someone that you've never met before and share the answer to this question and I think the interesting part of that is that oftentimes it's a very vulnerable question you know it's a very real question and the the audience is sort of put in this space where whoever wants to participate, which is usually like 90 to 95% of the people there, they'll go and participate and, and take part in that. And I think that's why, you know, what you're saying is, is really interesting because just asking profound and powerful questions to people, because these are the questions that people think about, right? Like, the, have you found that, that like most of these people are thinking about these very like deep, meaningful questions on their own, but not normally talking to other people about them? Yeah, of course, of course. I mean, it's it's funny when you when you start to open up to this level, and I've and I've, um, you know, and and I've um, developed a comfort with that aspect of of vulnerability. And it's not like I walk around daily just you know bearing my soul to people, but just um, if if I sense an opportunity, like somebody really wants to talk about something beyond you know the usual chit chat and small talk. I will I will take it there and you know when you when you develop that level of openness you discover everybody is struggling with something right and and sometimes they're struggling with something really massive some you know um something something deep their their marriage is falling apart their their child is is seriously ill whatever um you know almost everybody is is struggling with some deep thing but they they don't necessarily have anybody to talk about it with, and maybe maybe they can chat about it with their partner, but maybe they don't even have that kind of relationship with their partner where they can feel they supported by that person. You know, when you when you give when you give people license to talk about that stuff, it is um, you're giving them you know you're just giving them a real gift because so many people don't have a space to talk about those things. And if I think back to you know, we had these small group forum experiences in, in Patagonia where there was eight of, two, two groups of eight and it was, um, you know, people took turns. They, they had half an hour or 40 minutes. I, I can't remember what it was to present um, some sort of challenge or issue that they had and then get feedback from the group. Being all entrepreneurs, I thought, well, probably most of the conversations will be around business related stuff. But the vast majority of those conversations were around, you know, all kinds of other things often generally with 
uh, with a pretty big emotional charge behind them. And, you know, things, often things that have been weighing down on people for months or years. And um, just being able to bring that out in the open and have the act of other people sitting and listening and honoring and respecting what they, what they brought forward is so cathartic and powerful for them. And um, so, yeah, yeah, there's that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's so interesting, right? Cause a big part of the community building, like you were saying in the beginning is how do we find ways either one-on-one or in groups to, to allow for the masks to kind of come off, you know, for the, for the sort of bogus parts of our identity that we oftentimes put forward to try and prove ourselves to other people. And, and I think what you're saying there is, is that oftentimes when we can create and spark this conversation with people where it's not just about the surface level stuff that we would normally talk about. I mean, you know, I, I run this year long uh, group for, for guys that it's called a performance mastermind and they are all business owners and entrepreneurs and professionals. And, and it's interesting because the, when they, when they sign up, they've, every single time I get on the call with, with somebody that's applied, they're always like, you know, this, it just sounds so refreshing because it's like the real conversations that I didn't get at EO. You know, it's the real conversations that I didn't get in a regular business mastermind. Like I can handle the majority of my business, but I can't seem to be able to handle the totality Mm -hmm. of my life. You know, and how do I, how do I balance and find equilibrium between being a parent and a spouse and a business owner and, you know, like, and the like laundry list of responsibilities that we have. And that's, that's the challenge, right? Is to be able to talk about some of those, some of those real things. So how do you see, and I'm just curious to get your perspective, but how do you see digital communities impacting and affecting our physical and in-person communities? Yeah. Um, well, that brings to mind, um, I did a, I did a keynote on, on community a little while back and I did a lot of research into community for this particular presentation found a lot of interesting research about about you know the concept of online communities and the research kind of overwhelmingly said that online communities are really not a substitute for true community you know face-to-face community and there were several studies where they actually did brain scans of people you know, who interacted in real communities versus online communities, and the parts—the parts of the the brain that light up when one feels that true sense of belonging—did not light up in in uh, in the context of online communities, which probably isn't going to surprise everybody. But you know, really at the heart of it, it just the, the research showed that what we what we like to think of our communities uh, are really—they're really only communities if they actually lead to lead to actual physical face-to-face contact with with other people because that's how human beings relate we, we relate face-to-face uh, to other people and I think what where you know where online communities can really provide value is in providing a bridge toward that that physical community and and a means of contact and a means of ongoing discussion and you know that kind of stuff and and, and I've seen that in the mantox community where which, which is probably one of the, the best examples I've seen of an online community in terms of engagement and people engaging in respectful discussion. And it's not immune to, you know, the, I can't remember the name. There's some, there's some um, not law, but, you know, some pretext of 
90% of uh, online discussions eventually end up in somebody being compared to Hitler. And that, and, 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 um, and, you know, that's, that's kind of, we've all experienced that discussions online rarely, rarely remain respectful. And I think man talks is a great um, example, even though it has at times, but most of the, the, the communication on there is really res- respectful, uh, really rich dialogue, and it's great for that. But I, I wouldn't def- I wouldn't define that as real sense of community. And what's what's great to see is is people taking that as a starting point to hey, you know, I'm in I'm in London, England. Any any other members around here, or you know, I'm in Austin. Can can we get together? And that's where the real meat of of community and belonging happens. And and that's <clears throat> it's providing a great resource for people who have shared values, similar values, similar desires and goals to to come together and and because they're you know coming from that same starting point, there's more of an opportunity there's more of an opportunity to create that that sense of belonging and acceptedness uh, acceptance because because of that starting point. But we shouldn't look at them as you know the end goal. This is the research shows that it's not. It's not true community and people don't experience it as true community. Yeah, I would just so agree. And, you know, I think one of the interesting things is having run that online community now for a few years, like we just we just cracked 4,000 members in the group. But it's it's interesting because having run that for a while, in the very beginning, I wanted to create a space where men could have open discourse and conversation about any topic. And that was my initial intention. And it's interesting because I've seen the capacity for men to have extremely open dialogue and discourse about literally any topic in person. And, you know, at the at the men's weekends that I run, they 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 really dive in. Like there's no whole bars to the conversations that they'll have. But what I found in the group and in the online group specifically is that there seemed to be because of social dynamics and the the sort of removal of physical presence, it as soon as things like religion or politics, especially politics right now, because of just like the culture and the the polarity and the divide that seems to be showing up in our culture, it it's like <clears throat> community destroying, you know. And and suddenly the you know the the guys that are engaged that would normally be having very healthy conversations dissolve into these yeah. like you know grown children that that are all of a sudden just slanging shit at each other. And it's like, holy crap, like, you know, and so there's, there's rules to the group so that that doesn't happen. But it's very interesting to see, and, and I've had to remove politics entirely from the group and just say, you know what, these don't seem to be conversations that even the best of us are capable of having online because we, we remove almost like the emotional element of it. And politics are very emotional conversations. and so. You know, it's. I, I think what we're really talking about is so interesting because it almost reaffirms the importance, like the importance of creating communities in person where these types of conversations can happen. So, when when you think about the types of communities that you are building and are wanting to build more of, what types of conversations are you wanting to bring into the fold? Like, what types of people and conversations are you excited to have? Well, um, before I answer that question. I remembered that 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 thing I was talking about was called Godwin's law, and uh, as an online discussion mm-hmm. grows longer, the pro- probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. Um, so I want I wanted to just follow up with that. Um, I, yeah, I think like um, 
that your your question is a question that I'm still I'm still asking myself and still answering um, because on on the one hand I just I just love seeing people connect and I love um, you know on on a very simple level it's just we we have an epidemic of of loneliness and if we if we look at there's you know, that this is becoming uh, a, a very rich field of research the the study of loneliness and we can probably we don't need a lot of research to tell us that l- people being lonely is not a is not a healthy outcome right so people who are lonely tend to be tend to have more struggles with their mental health and physical health and all all kinds of things so on the one hand having been at various times in my life ex- extremely lonely i i approach it from a desire of i want to help people not feel lonely but i also I also approach it from the perspective of people, um, people who people who feel a sense of belonging and who feel part of community are are a happier, but b they tend to they tend to probably have more conversations around uh, growing into better and more evolved human beings, and um, they're exposed to more ideas. They're you know all kinds of aspects of that. So I haven't really you know thought about. What what specifically am I trying to get out of this? I, I think part of it is also um, having the having the faith to say, hey, if I get this group of people together, and traditionally a lot of my efforts have been around bringing entrepreneurs together, that great things will result, and they will coalesce around whatever you know, whatever shared interests they have, and whatever shared value they can provide to each other. And what's what's interesting, you know, and one of the one of the reasons why I do that is because of the tremendous ripple effects that can result. So when you, you know, you get a bunch of entrepreneurs together who collectively, um, collectively employ a thousand people, for instance, the, if I can help them feel happier and healthier and more alive and more connected, that's, that's inevitably, inevitably going to trickle down through their businesses. And I actually got an email about two weeks after my event in Patagonia from one of the guys there, he runs a fairly large manufacturing company, and and he thanked me for for the event and how it had shifted something in him and and caused him to open up, and how that had manifested in work and how people were commenting on that with him and people were coming up to him and um, you know telling him how much they appreciated him as as a leader and what they what he had done for them and in their lives and and uh, and how that had created this this very discernible culture shift at the company. And um, so part of that, you know, is, um, is wanting to create those ripple effects um, in, in the world. Yeah. I, I you know, I, at, at this point in time, I just look at it as, as helping to create a sense of belonging for, to, for people just, just for that sake itself, because that, that is such a, it, it's, it is such a rich and fulfilling feeling knowing that you have somewhere that you belong that that can sustain you through so much of of life's difficulties. Yeah, and I think it's I mean it I think what you're saying is is really really powerful and uh you know it's it it's funny like yesterday I flew back from Vancouver to New York and uh, on the plane I finally watched Bohemian Rhapsody. And and interestingly enough like there's a there's this point where Freddie Mercury and the band are they're talking about like who their music is for and they're trying to pitch their their album to this like huge agent in in America and he basically says like how how is your band any different from ours and and 
And basically, like Freddie Mercury goes off on like this little tangent. He's like, well, he's like, you know, all those people at the back of the audience that, you know, don't feel like, like they kind of feel like they're loners, like the society has forgotten them and, and they're sort of weird and strange and they feel like they don't fit in. He's like, that's, that's who we're for. We're for all the people that, that have forgotten where they fit in society. And I thought to myself, I remember like, I actually paused the movie and I was like, huh, like that's so interesting because in, in many, 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 many ways, almost everyone has a, at some time in their life, maybe not always, but at some time in their life, they have that feeling of like, I don't, I don't belong. Like I don't belong in my family. I don't belong in my, in my culture or, or my society. And they sort of drop out of connection with like a larger unit. And building community oftentimes is about finding who you, who, what, like, what lost souls you're really wanting to speak to, you know, and, and what people you're really wanting to bring together. And maybe they're, maybe they're not all sort of like lost. I don't want to use that word to put like a negative connotation on it, but it's like, who are you really wanting to bring together? And, and what are you, what are you doing to, to bring those people together? And, and like, who are they? And, and what are they looking for, right? What are they seeking? What are they wanting? And how can you bring them in, into like one space together, knowing who they are? And that seems to be such a powerful question in this time where loneliness is running rampant. Like, <laughs> it is insane. Like the, the British, the UK last year, the year before, I think it was 2017, assigned uh, a, uh, yeah, minister of loneliness, right? Like, it's such a real thing. And, and I th you know, I think a lot of people sort of mock it and make fun of it, um, but it is a very real thing where there's a lot of people that that feel alone. So I, um, yeah, man, I mean, I, I appreciate the work that you're doing. I think we're running out of time here. So is there anything else that you want to say about community building to, to the folks that are listening? I wanted to, I wanted to close with an excerpt from a, a poem, if you don't mind. Um, so this is a 16th, 16th century poet named John Donne. Um, it, it's, it contains the phrase, no man is an island, which, Many of us have heard, you know, hundreds of times in our life, but probably never knew where it came from. And, and I'm, I'm sort of drawing from it here, from the, the full poem. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, I think it's very sort of apropos to my work and the work that you do and, and relevant to everybody. So, so here it is. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. So that was, um, for me, just a great um, reminder, you know, for whom the bell tolls. It's, it's tolling for me and it's drawing me to this work and hopefully drawing everybody to, um, you know, to the, to the work of community building, being involved in communities, being involved in, in real and authentic communities. And, you know, like a, a community of people wearing... Mm make America great hats coalescing around some shared, uh, you know, anger at, at something that's not really a community. Community is, is coming together for, um, for companionship, for, for recognizing shared humanity for, you know, whatever. Um, so, you know, hopefully, hopefully this chat will in inspire some people to really think about community in news in new ways. Mm-hmm. 
I love it, man. I love it. Well, thank you so much for for that that last closing piece. I think that's a perfect perfect place to end. Maybe I should start ending all of my podcasts with uh like with a little the little poem that that like represents the the theme or or uh you know a piece a quote or a piece of like uh, wisdom from from someone in our past. But thank you so much for joining me, Mike. I really appreciate it. Thank you, brother. And uh, for everyone that's out there listening, definitely uh, check out the show notes. We will have uh, all of Mike's information there. You can check out uh, his, some of his adventure masterminds and uh, some of the incredible things he's doing. Where, where are you? Actually, one last thing. Where are you going later on this year? Um, I'm going to be in Fiji at the end of March and then uh, Bhutan in November. Nice. And I'm, and I'm sounds at, and I'm actually, sounds rough. Yeah, should be should be okay. I'm actually working on some really cool stuff for 2020. Uh, right now, I'm going to announce that in mid May, which should be. I'm, I basically try to up the bar with every single event that I run, and so that's that's a challenge that I don't take lightly. So nice. Yeah. Nice, man. Well, thank you so much again. And for everyone that's out there, definitely check out the links in the show notes uh, to learn more about Mike and the work that he's doing. And uh, if you are if you know of people that are in your life that are that are facing loneliness, that are that are trying to build communities, uh, that are going through a transition, then definitely share this episode with them, uh, or at the very least, share some of your notes from this episode and your, some of your thoughts and some of the things that you took away from this episode with them, just to support them and build that connection uh, and bridge and, and community with them. So uh, don't forget to head on over to the platform that you're listen, listening to us on and leave us a review and a rating that goes a long way. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. 